going to the first sermon slide. Um, uh, one announcement I forgot. Normally, we would be having a fifth Sunday potluck next week. You know, potlucks are very important. We have decided to reschedule that for the first Sunday of November so that it's not the same weekend that we're getting ready for a chunk or treat. So the October 5th Sunday potluck will be the first Sunday of November. So look forward to that. We are going back into this sermon series on the book of Colossians. We took two weeks off from going through the passages, uh, going through it paragraph by paragraph. Last week, we listened to the entire book. And this is an important junction, juncture in the book because Paul has this habit of front-loading all of his theology and back-loading the application. So if you go into Romans, there's a hinge point where he spends like eight chapters, uh, or there, he spends a certain number of chapters, 11 chapters, there we go, setting you up with the theory. And then he says, therefore, and he gives you all the application, this is how you should live. He does the same thing in the book of Ephesians. And we're at the place where he does that in the book of Colossians. However, because it's been, there's, there's uh, anybody know the, the trick they teach you when you're reading the Bible, when you start a verse with the word therefore, what should you do? You go back to find out what it's there for. <laughs> um, so what I'm actually going to do, since it's all, especially because it's been three weeks since we were in uh, going through Colossians, I'm going to read last week's passage and this week's passage so that we can see the connection and see the momentum that Paul is building up. Because this is the week where he's really going to put um, boots on the ground. He's going to tell you exactly what it looks like to live in light of the gospel. So if you have your New Testament, I would encourage you to have it open through the sermon to chapter 3. And if you're able, I'll encourage you to stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to start in chapter 2, verse 20. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now we move into today's passage. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, and you once walked in these things when you were living in them. But now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and un circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. But Christ is all and is in all. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. Now this passage, as I said, it be, it's where Paul begins to get very practical 
in terms of how we are to live out what he's been saying. It also happens to contain my favorite verse in all of scripture. It ends with my favorite verse, but it'll take us a little bit to get there. First, what I want to do is I want to remind us what the therefore is therefore. There's two important things that Paul talks about in the passage that we covered three weeks ago. He talks about being dead in Christ and being raised in Christ. So he says, you died with Christ to the elements of this world. If you remember when we talked about this, we talked about the fact that the elements of this world literally means like the periodic table of elements, which for them had four boxes. For us, it has a lot more. But it's literally the physical world. And what he means is that if you are without Jesus, our normal sinful state or mortal state is to be enslaved to the natural world around us because we depend on, on matter for, to sustain our lives. We are slaves to matter when it comes to living lives that are long enough, that are meaningful enough, that we want to accomplish the things that give us worth. If we want our life to be satisfying, we are depending on our external circumstances. Right? If you want to be a famous pop singer, you are a slave to your vocal cords and your ear. If you, if you can't carry a tune, you're not going to be a pop singer. Right? Auto-tune can only get you so far. Uh, there are, you're a slave to the created world around you. And if you, you know, like we heard in the offering meditation, if your goal is wealth, you are a slave to the systems we use to accumulate wealth. You're a slave to your bank. You're a slave to your job. You're a slave to all these circumstances that control your ability to be rich and for your life to matter that way. What Paul is saying is that if you have given your life to Jesus and you have received his eternal life, then you are no longer a slave to the world around us because ultimately your bank account doesn't define you. Your singing career doesn't define you. It doesn't actually matter even how long you live in this life because there is more life, there is eternal life to be found. And I, I don't remember if it was the last sermon in this series, or one of them I talked about, like imagine 200 years into the resurrection and you look back, what will you care about from that perspective? What will actually matter from that perspective? And what you will find is that all the main things that we are afraid of, that we are controlled by, that we are enslaved to, you simply won't care about. On an eternal timeline, will you care about having eked out one more life in this existence or having you know, a, a couple more digits in your bank account or having a couple more things on, to put on your wall? We're freed from that kind of slavery. You are no longer dominated by your mortal nature. That's what it means to be dead with Christ. What it means to be raised with Christ, he says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, this means that it's not that you don't care about anything, but what you care about are the things above. Now, that doesn't mean that you only care about heaven, that you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, because the best way to be, to be any earthly good is to be heavenly minded. Because as we'll see, what Paul has in mind for us is about how we live in the here and now. He doesn't mean think about being in heaven. He means think about the agenda of heaven. Think about what God is accomplishing in the world. Because 200 years into your resurrection life, you're not going to care about how much success you found in pursuing your own agenda. You're going to look back and appreciate the things that you did that pursued God's agenda. You're going to appreciate the things that you did that really mattered for the world that God has been creating. 
You're going to care about the, thing, the ways you lived that made you more like God. You're going to care about the things you did that built his kingdom here on earth. You're, that's what you're going to care about, about what God does in, is doing in this world and being a part of it. So you have been raised with Christ. That means he is your source of life, that you trust in the fact that you, you don't live because your heart is beating or because you have food in your pantry or because you have money in your bank. You live because Jesus sustains you. And then you find purpose in him. Because you live in Christ, by, uh, when you live in Christ, you pursue his agenda, his vision, as opposed to when you find your life in your body, you do what your body tells you to do, and you satisfy your body's agenda. This is what he said in the last, in the last passage we, we went into, and so he summarizes the, the conclusion that that leads to in today's passage this way. He says, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Now, the language he uses there is the language you would use for changing clothes. You took off the old ratty garment of your old self and you have put on a new self. You've shed what was mortal and broken in you and you have put on a new identity, a new life, a new person. But here's the thing. you don't get to choose what your new outfit looks like. You don't get to have it cut to your style. You don't get to decide what it looks like because there is only one new self being offered. Paul says, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. One of the things that we often get wrong and the way the gospel gets distorted is to say that God is going to give you just a shinier, better version of yourself. And you're going to get to continue to prioritize the things you prioritize and pursue the things you pursue and love the things you love and, and it'll just be shinier and maybe a little nicer, probably more prosperous and maybe more you know, in church on Sunday mornings, but otherwise still the same self. But the self that we're being offered, there's only one cut. It doesn't get tailored. It looks like Jesus. So you are being shaped to look like Jesus. And this, and, and what Paul is going to do in this passage, and in the next passage, is he's going to get very detailed in what that looks like. This week's passage looks at what the, the, the things about your clo- old clothing that have to go. The things that will not carry over into the new clothing. And then next week's passage is going to talk about what is unique to that new clothing. What, what, is it, what does the Jesus cut suit look like? But right now, we're talking about why you cannot keep the suit that is cut to fit you. And Paul groups this, he takes this conversation in two chunks. First, he says, therefore, put to death or consider dead, would be another way to translate that. Treat as dead what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, if you're doing a study of a passage and you find a list, that's probably when you want to pull out your dictionary or go online and do some searching because it is a list, this is a list of terms that are all pretty similar. And the, the differences between them are important. 
And the differences between the Greek words are not necessarily the same as the differences between the English words. So this is where, if you pull out, a, if you have a commentary, they'll often dig into this for you. Um, it's, and so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go through this with you in terms of the Greek words that Paul is using and what they actually mean, okay? So the first word is porneia. That may look familiar. It is the root word of pornography. Porneia started, basically, um, it refers, when a Jew or a Christian uses it, it refers to any sexual contact outside of marriage. So um, the specific things that they will often refer to, whether uh, Christian writers or Jewish writers before them, they will use this term, uh, it started out referring mainly to using prostitutes. It also came to refer to temple prostitutes. It came to refer to adultery. It came to refer to uh, homosexual acts. It's basically anything outside of marriage. Because at the time, the way it worked was a man was entitled to have sex with anyone ranked below him. The only wrong kind of sex in the Roman world was sex with someone who was... um, was your social equal or superior. So anyone beneath you, a man, a man had free access to, and there was no controversy about it. And that's what was so different about Jewish and Christian sexual ethics, is they actually expected men to be faithful to their wives. Everybody expected wives to be faithful to their men. But men actually had to be just as faithful in this community. And so the emphasis here is that sexual conduct has a purpose, it has a function, it has a role, and that engaging in that outside of its role uh, is, is wrong. And the role that it plays is to unite a man and a woman to form a bond that is capable of creating and sustaining children. Right? Physically, it creates a child but also the bond, we're genetically designed to bond through that act, and it creates the bond that is capable of, of creating a family that will sustain that child. So that's the first term that he brings up. The second one is akatharsia. Akatharsia, is, it means, katharsia uh, uh, means clean. Akatharsia means not clean. It's the word they would use for unclean, uh, being ritually unclean. And in this context, what it means is it's the corruption that comes from sinful behavior. This is one of the things that we don't uh, think in these terms so much in our individualistic, voluntary society. We think whatever you do, that if, as long as you've got everybody's permission, it's fine. And in particular, in this list, he is talking about uh, sexual uncleanness. And our societal ethic is to say, as long as it's in the privacy of my own bedroom, as long as it involves consenting adults, it doesn't matter. It's not, it can do whatever I want. And the, when the, so the way Paul is approaching this, first of all, is not talking about what should be legally permissible. He's talking about what's right based on our design as human beings. And what he's acknowledging is that even things that happen behind closed doors or things that happen between consenting adults they have lingering effects. They change, they, they, they can corrupt you. So for instance, the use of pornography 
corrupts the way you think about other people. As if they needed to, they've done psychological steps, uh, studies that show that using pornography changes the way your brain responds to people. You're actually, you're, you're a male brain, uh, when a person's been addicted to pornography, when they see a woman, the part of their, you have a part of your brain that's for social interactions and a part of your brain for using tools. And the tools part reacts when, you, when a, a person, the more they use pornography, the more the tool using part of their brain will react to an attractive person. It actually changes the way you think, it changes the way you behave, it actually affects you, and it distorts your behavior. That's why even overindulging in your sexual appetite, even if all of your partners are consenting, it changes the way you think about other people, it changes the motivations that drive you, it changes your, the, the, the orientation of your heart. It changes you. It's not just a matter of isolated incidents that happen that, that, and only the physical effects. This word refers to the moral corruption that comes from that. Pathos, you may be familiar with that word. It means passion. It's where we get the word pathetic, empathetic, sympathetic. People actually, we also just use the word pathos. Um, in this case, in this context, he's specifically talking about sexual passion that overwhelms your self-control. This is when your desire means that you don't act the way you otherwise would have. In the moment, your blood gets up and you just act on impulse. Now, this is the way we tend to think about lust, although it's not the word that gets translated. And I think it's even the word that gets translated lust in the translation I'm using. But the next term is the one that Jesus uses for lust. It's kakan epithumia. And it means um, evil desire. Desire, epithemia, is, can be, is neutral. Depends on whether you're supposed to desire the thing. So the apostles will talk about desiring to see the people in a church that they're writing to. But in this case, he's talking about evil desires. Um, desiring that is evil. So that the fact that you're desiring and the way you linger on that desiring is evil. Jesus uses this to refer when he says to, that if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. What he's referring to there is not the you notice someone and then look away. It is the, it's the longing. It's the desire. It's the camping out on that thought. Whether that's a lingering, like the glance turns into a stare, or whether you, you take a picture and stare in your mind, or, or it's when you're dwelling on that desire. And the problem that is that, again, you are um, you're giving into that, you're feeding that desire, you're feeding that appetite, and that is becoming, uh, that's how you're spending your time. The finite time that you have, you're investing in this kind of desire. And the last term that he uses is pleonexia, which is greediness, desire for objects. What Paul, and that's, you know, whether you're desiring wealth or possessions or land or whatever it is, is desiring physical things. And Paul's commentary on this is that desiring physical things is idolatry. But really, he's referring to the entire list as idolatry. Um, Because there's a long tradition, going back to the Ten Commandments, when it says don't covet, specifics are don't covet your neighbor's wife and don't covet your neighbor's possessions. So these are thought of as species of the same thing, and they are idolatry. Now, what is idolatry? Idolatry is when you worship something. 
and it, when you worship something that isn't worthy of that worship. So in the ancient world, that was deities. But already back then, Paul is recognizing other things, that anything you put in the place of God is idolatry. And so what he's telling them, the first thing they need to do in order to take off their garments is they need to turn away from idolatry, which is worshiping the things your mortal nature desires. So what Paul is, the reason Paul is talking about these things, and see, this is one of the issues that, that people will bring up, and I know I am right on a very touchy area in our society right now, but I want you to understand the perspective that the Bible is coming from, because in our, in our modern culture, we think that there's just, well, people will say, well, there's just not that much at stake, right? Like, it, why does this even matter? Why does God care about what I do in the privacy of my bedroom? And what Paul is saying is that what matters is what you worship. And we are formed by worship. You are changed by what you spend your life obsessed with. And you will do things to, to pursue and preserve the, what you worship. So there is nothing in your life that is incidental and private and doesn't affect the rest. money is a key indicator of where you've put your worship. So much of the kind of person you become is tied up in what you put at the center of your life. And the key indicator for Paul here is when the object gets manipulated out of where it's the role it's supposed to play in your life. I'll give you a personal example. Okay? Three years ago, I lost a considerable amount of weight. I put in a lot of work, and I, I drastically reduced my intake of food. And I, I put off a considerable amount of weight. This year, I found more of it than I intended to. And honestly, if I kind of think back on why that is, this last year has been especially hard. And you know what I tend to do when life gets especially hard? I tend to use food for things that it's not designed for. I mean, there's, a, there's an extent to which food can be a wonderful, can be used wonderfully as a blessing, you know, and it's, it's good to eat together and things like that. But when you use food as medication, you know what happens? You find the weight that you lost. And I have simply struggled to maintain that. Uh, I've struggled to lose or even maintain the weight that I was at because it's, I just, my heart hasn't been in denying that, you know? And I'm giving myself some freedom to, to focus on the more important priorities of, of mental and emotional health right now. And, and, but what, I, what that reveals in me is that I've, my health, you know, my weight has changed because I've been using food for something that it's not designed for. And in our lives, when money plays a role in our lives that it's not designed for, you get out of spiritual shape. When sex plays a role in your life that it's not designed for, 
It gets out of spiritual shape. And that's why regardless of where you fall on sexual ethics, the fact that so many people in our world define themselves by their desires, like define our identities by what we desire. And in so many areas of life, we also define our identities by how we vote or what we, like all kinds of different things. And what we're doing is we're elevating those to a role that they weren't supposed to play in our lives. That's idolatry. And if you're going to follow Christ, that has to go. Because you're putting on Christ, and that means that he has to be the center. Now, one of the problems that the church has had in the past several decades is we've become fixated, and we've always struggled with this, some sins are more visible than others. And so we really fixate on the visible sins, and then we think, man, I only have the invisible sins, so I must be doing pretty good, right? Like, we talked about the big sins, and I, I have, you know, the Ten Commandments, except for a little bit of coveting my neighbor's camel. But other than that, I'm doing awesome. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't cheated on my spouse. You know, I've got those. I've listened to that list. It's great. Um, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. What I meant... Paul finishes that list by saying, because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And when we hear the word wrath, what we often hear is that God is so angry at these disgusting people that he needs to crush them. That is not what God's wrath means. When, they, when the, Paul talks about God's wrath, he's talking about God's wrath as a king. A king's wrath is, how the, is the king enforcing the law. When you break the law... You, you receive the wrath of the king. So if you, get, if you speed and you get pulled over and you get a ticket, that tick, in that ticket you are experiencing the wrath of the state of Oregon. Does that mean the state of Oregon hates you? Or that there's, there's fury behind it? No, it's a term for the fact that the king is stirred up by crime and acts against it. So when it says that because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient, it isn't saying that God is so disgusted by certain things that he just has to crush those people. What it's saying is that these behaviors, they interfere with God's design and God's good creation. They actually cause problems and disruptions to God's kingdom. And as king, he must intervene. Because unless he does intervene in some way, his good design can never be fully implemented. So these sins disrupt God's good creation, and he will put a stop to them. And there are, there are several options for how those can be put a stop to. And the ideal is that they, you put a stop to them by putting on Christ. But ultimately, this isn't, God is not hateful. He isn't disgusted. He loves everyone, and he is, but ultimately, he will not allow sin to have the final word. And so we must put on the image of Christ. Now, when we think about that and we say, hey, I've checked off the big boxes. I haven't committed most of the, um, most of the uh, Ten Commandments. I'm, I'm good because I don't have the visible sins. That's not far enough. Now, I'm not saying that like you can't, if you sin, you're not, I'm not saying this is what you need to do to earn salvation. I'm saying this is what it looks like to put on the image of Jesus, that it's not just enough that you haven't done the, the things that get headlines um, or that, we, you know, that we're arguing about in the news now. Because Paul also says, Paul says, You've, you were doing these things. Now you don't. However, I need you to keep going. He says, now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices. That list hits a little bit closer to home, doesn't it? You may have looked at the last list and said, hey, thank God I am not struggling with any of those right now. If you've said that about this list, I would say you're probably not right. You're probably missing something going on in your life. What Paul is talking about here, the first thing is uh, Jorge, which is impulsive anger. This is losing your temper. You know that God doesn't want you to lose your temper? If you're losing your temper, that that is a place that needs to be redeemed by God. Thumos, wrath, is passionate anger. This is where you get overcome by anger and the need to punish people, but you don't actually have the right to punish people. God has the right to exercise wrath because he's king. We don't have the right to exercise wrath, but we don't let that stop us, do we? One of the difficult things to teach my four-year-old son is not to parent his two-year-old sister, right? Let mom and dad enforce the rules, but he wants to enforce them, and it's usually in a very biased way, right? He's human. It's just like all of us. We, we are much more passionate about enforcing the law on others than on ourselves. Kakia is evil, and in this context, it means intention to harm others when you're doing something to hurt somebody. Blasphemia, sound familiar? Blasphemy. And in, when you're not talking about God, it just has the broad sense of insulting another person's character. Talking behind their back, um, doing things specifically to make them look bad. And then uh, iscrologia, which means logia is words, shameful or corrupt or filthy words. It's one of the things that we get, another one of those things that we think is innocent, and we think that it's, we have different ways of talking, right? You have church talk, and then you have work talk. You know, like, talk like a sailor, like when you're sailing, there's a certain way of talking that's allowed, um, And what Paul is saying here is that there aren't different levels of appropriate talk. There are ways of talking and things that you talk about that ought not to come out of your mouth, regardless of where you are. And in fact, the places where it's more appropriate are perhaps the places where it's more important to observe those lines because when you use shameful talk, Around people who talk shamefully, you're validating it, and you're saying that this does represent who you are. We're supposed to look like Jesus, which means we're supposed to talk like Jesus. And the words that you choose in every arena of your life are one of the most powerful ways that you reflect Jesus. So what would Jesus say when he stubs his toe? That might, that, that's, <laughs> what you say when you stub your toe is advanced uh, sanctification. <laughs> Let's start with the jokes that you tell. If you, when, when you get to the place where you can condition what you say when you stub your toe, you're doing really, really well. Uh, the last one is pseudomai, deception, intentionally deceiving others. These are all things that Paul says we have to take off. They are part of the old self. They do not reflect Jesus, and you will not find them on your Jesus suit of clothes. You can't wear them. They don't fit. They're like the brown belt with black shoes. You can't wear them. 
But what they all have in common is that all of these traits, what he's emphasizing by this list, because Paul's not giving an exhaustive list. He's not saying that there's only like 11 things that you have to stop doing to look like Jesus. Right? And it's not also not a point of a numbered list of things you have to stop doing. It's not a checklist. What he's doing is he's painting a picture and he's used these 11 strokes to paint it. And these strokes, what they paint is the picture of divisiveness of behavior that is destructive to loving Christ-centered community. So he says, turn away from divisiveness, disrupting the community of God to satisfy your mortal nature. Because if you look at all those things he's talking about, those are all things that we do because they feel good in the moment. It feels good to lash out in anger when I, when I get caught up in my temper, right? It feels good in the moment, even though I'm going to regret for much longer the words that I said, it felt good in the moment. It feels good to do cruel things to people that have angered me. All of these behaviors are ways that we put our own desires and our own uh, natures above the community that God is building. And that means that God cares just as much about the way you contribute to the unity of this body as he cares about what you do in your bedroom. He cares about the way you speak to your family members as much as he cares about how you handle your money, right? He cares about the kind of, he cares about the way you interact with your neighbors as much as anything in your life. And if you say, well, I tithe and I don't cheat and I got the big ones, but you're a disruptive influence in your community, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your church, you have more work to do. I mean, we all will always have more work to do till we get to glory, and ultimately the Spirit has work to do in us. But if you're looking to see how well am I moving on this track of putting on the Jesus-shaped suit, these behaviors are absolutely key. And it's interesting, when I, I did a lot of reading after my brother died on the psychology of death awareness and, and what it, how it affects us to be aware of death, and secular psychologists said, they, they, they weren't Christian, they were actually fairly anti-Christian, it seemed like, but they came to some interesting conclusions. And one of the things they concluded was that most of our divisive behavior comes from our fear of death. Most of our divisive behavior comes from the fact that we rely on certain things to give our lives meaning when we know that our life is limited. I'm going to die, but I want my life at least to have mattered, and so I'm going to invest my life into these things, achieving these things. But other people can be a threat to my achievements. If my achievement is something that only a few people can achieve, like if my identity is wrapped up in winning something or leading something or being the best at something, other people can threaten me by competing for it. But also, other people can threaten my self-worth by not caring about the things that I care about. It's one of the reasons they argue for a lot of the violence between competing belief systems is because if I think that I can be a good person by, you know, like, okay, nationalism. One of the reasons why people will fight, like why Christians fight each other over their countries is because I believe that I'm part of the best country in the world, but you believe that your country is the best in the world, and if yours is, then my value is lessened. The point of all of this, and it's, it's get convoluted, the reason I bring this up is simply to say that our divisive behavior the way we disrupt our communities and, and the reason why we can't seem to all get along is because of our self-centered slavery to our flesh 
And if and one of the markers that you have left that behind and you are following Jesus is the fact that that competition, that rivalry, doesn't matter anymore. A church devoted to Jesus Christ will be able to have people of different ethnicities, different political persuasions, different socioeconomic um, classes, all worshiping together. And this is ultimately where Paul lands the plane for this section of the passage. It's also a springboard to the next. But this is, for me, the most powerful verse in Scripture for what the church is meant to be. In Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and is in all. See, the interesting thing about those categories, he's got them in pairs, Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free. Within, if you, re, if you look at the 200 years before Paul, there have been bloody wars fought on every one of those seams. The Greeks and the Jews fought in the Maccabean Revolt. After the Maccabean Revolt, there was a whole series of civil wars between circumcised and uncircumcised Jews. Um, the Romans fought wars with the barbarians and the Scythians. The Scythians were, didn't even exist anymore at Paul's point, but they were just the term for the boogeymen, those people across the river who might come over and kill us. Um, there were slave revolts. Um, Spartacus, Spartacus slave revolts. And what Paul is saying is that in the church, all of those get left behind because it doesn't matter if your people win that battle. It doesn't matter if, the, if you're Greek and the Greeks win. It doesn't help you. It also doesn't hurt you if your identity is in Christ. What ultimately matters is Christ. And so when we come together, we ought to be able to set aside all those rivalries, and a Greek ought to be able to worship right next to a Jew. And perhaps most powerfully, people will point out that the New Testament doesn't condemn slavery, but it does tell slaves and masters to worship next to each other. And you know what we found happened in history? That really changed people. It is really hard. When you worship with the person you own, it changes the way you treat them. And that's what we found, find happened in history. Because ultimately what we are supposed to do when we start putting on the Jesus suit, what we see when we look around is we don't see the people coming from all these different ethnicities and these different socioeconomic boundaries and these people who vote differently than me. We see their Jesus suit. We see that it's, you know, it's, it's not all the way adjusted properly yet, just like mine isn't. Right? We're still tightening ties and adjusting color, and we're still making it, you know, learning into our suit. But we, that's what we care about is that you, whoever you are, you're wearing a Jesus suit. That's what we care about. And so it brings us together, and in the new humanity where we all look like Jesus, there's no room for rivalries or feuds. Christ is all that matters. And it doesn't mean that we don't have Greeks and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, Scythian, barbarian, slave, and free in our church. It doesn't mean you pretend that you aren't those things. What it means is that those things don't divide us because the source of our identity, the root of who we are, is Jesus. So the root of my identity is Jesus. The most important thing to me about myself is Jesus. And the most important thing to me about you is Jesus. If you sing off-key, you've still got Jesus in you. If you are of a different ethnicity from me, guess what? 
so is Jesus. If you're in a different ethnic or a different socioeconomic class than me, guess what? So is Jesus. Like there are very few things that I actually personally have in common with Jesus. And so if I'm going to be in Christ, I'm going to be have to have to be with him with all the rest of you. So that's why ultimately you cannot pursue the image of Christ alone. And you cannot decide that it's just going to make me, I'm just going to be me off on my own and look like Jesus. It has to be done in community. We have to do it together. And we have to create not just people who look like Christ, but a community that looks like Christ. Amen? So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. First, have you committed to becoming a new person? Remember that becoming a new person, there, aren't just, there isn't just any new person available. The only new person on offer is Jesus. So have you committed to looking like Jesus? If not, today is the day to do that. If you have, then are you resisting your sinful and selfish appetites? Are you actually fighting back? Are you actually pushing? Because the, the, if it were possible for you to flip a switch and just not have those appetites anymore, then you wouldn't really need Jesus. You're going to be facing, we all face a lifelong battle in the power of the Holy Spirit against our appetites, but some of us aren't fighting. Some of us aren't trying. Some of us aren't trying very hard. And most of us fluctuate in how hard we're trying. So the question is, where are you? Are you resisting the appetite, the, the parts of the cravings of your body that push you to worship something other than Jesus and find your purpose and your self and your, your value in something other than Jesus. And if you can think of something, then maybe what God is then what God is calling you to do right now is to reject it, to identify it and to fight against it and to fight against that idol. The third question is: Are you seeking the peace and unity of Jesus? I'm currently taking a class called Ecclesiology, and it's on how people think of the church. And I've read so many uh, uh, people describing the church throughout history, um, emphasizing that it is so important that we have the right doctrine, and then I guess we should love each other. And and ultimately what that ends up saying is that we're going to make sure I'm right, and I'm surrounded by people who agree with me, and I guess I'll love the people that agree with me. We are supposed to pursue peace and unity for its own value because that is what will make our community look like Jesus. So are you willing to put aside the impulses that make you want to uh, you know, yell at people, make you want to insult people, talk behind their back? All these things that are disruptive to your church or to your neighborhood or to your family. If you see ways that you are, are doing those things, that you are disrupting those areas, God is calling you to take that off and to put on something that looks more like Jesus. Now, if you have identified those things and you realize, I need help, then first and foremost, you need Jesus, and he gives you the Holy Spirit, which is the power of God in you to make these changes. But God also gives us the church. And so if you don't have and are in need of a community of believers to come alongside you as we learn what this looks like together, that's who this church is. We'd love for you to grab one of the green cards in front of you and sign up for one of our, or sign up for, um, one of our small groups or our classes. And if you realize you need to put boots on the ground and start actually serving others, that's what the blue card is for. I encourage you to consider what next step God has for you 
Um, as the worship team comes up, I'd encourage you to really be thinking about what is it that God wants you to do in response to the word that you have heard today. Can you do that for me? All right, let's stand and sing.